This is Periodically Political, brought to you by Elect STEM. We bring you stories of where science intersects politics. My name is Chris Caputo, and I'll be your co-host today, along with Darren Anderson and Monica Stoller. Our guest today is Preston Manning, who is the founder of the Manning Foundation for Democratic Education and the Manning Center for Building Democracy, which seeks to strengthen the knowledge, skills, principles, and ethical foundations of participants in Canada's political processes. Mr. Manning served as a member of parliament from 1993 to 2001. He founded two political parties, the Reform Party of Canada and the Canadian Reform Conservative Alliance, both of which became the official opposition in the Canadian Parliament and laid the foundation for the modern Conservative Party of Canada. Mr. Manning served as the leader of the opposition from 1997 to 2000 and was also his party's science and technology critic. He has been a strong supporter of the Canadian Science Policy Conference since its, since its inception. Thank you so much for your time today and welcome to the show. Okay, thank you. So here at Elect STEM, uh, what we really want to do is engage more STEM-educated folks in the political process. Get them, get them mobilized, get them to run, get them involved. Um, you yourself studied physics for a while at the University of Alberta. Um, and also you grew up in a political family, yet worked in the private sector for quite a while before you made that jump into politics. So the first thing we want to talk about is really about your origin story. Uh, how and why did you you know, make that jump into politics in the first place? Well, I, I did grow up in a political family. My uh, my father was an MLA and premier in Alberta from uh, 1943 to 1968. So he had a long uh, run at it. So I, I, I grew up uh, like with politics was just part of the, the, the woodwork. Uh, although he was involved in provincial politics, I, I was more interested in uh, in federal politics. And uh, one of the ways, so I went in the consulting business, but I used our consulting business to study various political issues using somebody else's money. So (laughs) at a consulting practice, you can do that. And it can be a training ground if you're interested in various uh, uh, public uh, uh, issues. And I was aware of the Western history of of producing uh, new political parties. Uh, Joe Clark was at the university the same time as I was, and Joe was committed to working within the federal conservative party. He didn't say it was perfect, but he was going to do what he could to try to change it and u- use it. Uh, I, I was uh, more conscious that the, periodically the West had produced these new parties. The West and Quebec are the two parts of the country that have a third party tradition. And I decided, well, I'm going to wait around until there's an opportunity for another one of these. It took about 20 years, but eventually that opportunity came along. And so I, uh, I got involved in creating the reform party. Yeah. With, with the founding of the reform party. So did you, like, uh, you hadn't, had you run for office prior to that uh, under any other of the party's flags, or is this kind of the first steps you made? Well, I, yeah, I ran once just to get experience in in nineteen sixty something. <laughs> I uh, I ran uh, in Edmonton East for the, the old Social Credit Party, which was the last one of the third parties that the West had produced. I, I had no chance of winning, and I finished second. But I learned quite a bit in the uh, in the process. But I didn't run again until we had the reform, and so I ran in nineteen eighty eight. We didn't win. We ran seventy two candidates in that election. Uh, Eleven finished second, but nobody won. But again, it just did enough to get it off the ground that uh, it went on from there. 
I understand. Yeah, it's a recurring theme that we've heard through this podcast series that, you know, the first time you run, you probably won't win. The second time, maybe. Third time's a charm, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the, what's useful to, and to scientists uh, looking at the political arena is, is to read political biography. Like you can learn a lot from the experience of others, the mistakes that they made and the, what was successful and, and just uh, reading political, it's, it's, it's interesting stuff too. So uh, re- reading political biography is not a bad way to kind of see what it's about and, and uh, maybe pick up some tips. Well, and that's a great segue. Um, so you, you've recently published a book. Uh, you called it Do Something with an exclamation mark. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I want to dig into that a little bit. But before we do, why, why did you call the book Do Something? Well, I, I am alarmed uh, with, uh, and, and I think this is a danger, particularly for your generation, the younger generation, that there's a tendency today, particularly facilitated by the social media, to, to discuss things, to write about things, to blog about things, to uh, Twitter about things, but and to substitute dis- endless discussion and debate for actual action. And uh, so in, in a lot of my latter speeches and all, I, I'd have a discussion of whatever the issue is, but I would try to end it up by saying, okay, if you even agree with half of what we've been talking about here, here's three things you can do to advance these uh, arguments. And I, I ended virtually every chapter in this book with, uh, with a section of, of things, a list of here's things you could do if, if these ideas carry your judgment. So just following up on that, I, you published the book recently. Have you heard stories of people that have acted uh, based on the topics that you've covered in the book or your speeches? Or, or Well, a little bit. This came out just when the COVID business hit. So the, the, really the distribution of it was badly affected. But uh, we are getting – I was just on a conference call this morning with a advocacy group that uh, – has decided to end all their calls with a call to do something. <laughs> and and they're, a group, they're a group that they're dealing with issues that could very well lend themselves to endless discussion, but they, they kind of agreed you need action as well as advocacy. And so I, I'm hopeful that other people will do the same. That's great. Well, and one thing that came through really clearly in your book is this idea of, of the ethic of service and of, you know, doing your duty to the country and, and really, um, you know, trying to make Make Canada a better place. Could you talk a little bit about why you think that's so important and, and why you see that as a motivating factor for folks to get involved? Yeah, people have various motivations for getting involved in in politics, and some of them can be quite uh, you know self serving. They can be monetary uh, reasons. There can be kind of egotistical reasons of wanting to be in the news all the time. And, and I don't discount. There's got to be some personal motivation but uh, i do think from the standpoint of the country that a big part of that motivation should be an actual desire to serve the country and to serve your constituents and if you're interviewing candidates or potential candidates uh, and it's all about me and not much about what i can do for others that might be a signal that maybe that person should do something else (laughs) yeah no that makes sense so one of the other things you talk about a fair bit in your book is uh, bridging gaps between political parties and you know, how to make sure that you're able to have a constructive conversation with people that you disagree. Could you talk a little bit about what you've seen work there, where your concerns are? Well, I think one of the ways of 
uh, trying to keep the discourse civil among people that may disagree on a lot of things is, is to try to find what the common ground is and at least start there to show that, that we do have some things in common and now we're going to get on to what we we don't. And for example, in our politics, no matter what party you're in, you should be a small D Democrat. I mean, our, our system is a democratic system. So what we all should have in common is a commitment to making the democratic process work better. It's that process and that those institutions that give us the chance to do what we're doing, even to disagree. So finding that common ground. In the federal parliament, there, there's oft, maybe, not, not always, there, there may be often more common ground on foreign relations, where, where now you're not talking about the domestic things on which people may divide, but you know, surely every every party's got a concern about how to relate to China, for example. So um, finding the common ground there might be one way. And, and the other thing is just try to keep the conversation civil. I mean, you can fundamentally disagree with somebody, but you don't have to call them names. You don't have to provoke them and just keeping it uh, it civil. And this is increasingly difficult in this polarized political environment where you, you get attention and you get media attention by not being civil. But uh, civility is probably a pretty important thing still. So, so as an elected official, I mean, how how did you handle the, you know, the personal abuse or, or you know, when people were taking aim at you or your family? And what conversations did you have with your family about it? Uh, since, you know, in all of our cases, we're all part of a, a larger group. If we're thinking of running for public office, it doesn't just impact us, it impacts our family. So, so what advice would you have there? Well, well, p- partly because we grew up uh, with a political family, we didn't have a lot of discussion. Maybe we should have had more discussion uh, on it, but uh, I think it was sort of assumed that I would do something in this area. The the, the one of the main defenses against the attacks, and and the attacks are becoming the biggest single reason why people won't involve themselves as in the electoral processes. I've been involved in candidate recruitment my entire life and increasingly the biggest single reason that people give for I won't stand for elected offices, I, I won't submit myself. And and often they stress more, I won't submit my, suggest my family, I submit my family to the abuse that I'll get. But one of the major protections is just to ignore it and develop a thick shell that just don't ever let anything get to you, particularly emotionally. And I think that was a strategy my father used and uh, and I used. When the legislature was sitting, when I, I was young, uh, my, my parents had a, a nanny housekeeper that used to look after my brother and myself. And one of them thought all these attacks on my father was detrimental to our development. So she undertook to cut out of the newspaper all <laughs> And when the legislature was in session, the newspaper looked like a piece of spaghetti because you had to cut so many. But I think developing that thick thick skin is one mechanism. The only danger in that is you you develop a thick skin that doesn't let any emotion-laden message get through, including ones that should, like from your own family. So that's the downside of combating that with a thick skin. But that was basically the the technique that I use. 
Uh, that makes sense. So you talked about candidate recruitment there. Uh, you know, if we have, if there's listeners listening to this that are interested in running for public office, I mean, how do they get connected with um, folks that are, you know, parties that are looking for people to run? How do we uh, help build those connections between potential candidates and, and the political infrastructure? Well, one is to get involved some way or other, you know, to take a look at the, uh, I distinguish between the, the, I'm more on the conservative side, so I distinguish between the conservative movement and the parties. But you can do this no matter what party. If you think of a pyramid with the party at the the elected officials at the top, but underneath there's a whole bunch of other institutions. There's think tanks that develop intellectual capital. There's advocacy groups that champion various issues. There's training programs. There's communications vehicles. Uh, one way to get involved is to get involved with some of those infrastructure elements. And then eventually that can lead to your involvement with a political party. Or or the other thing is to actually join a political party and and participate in its activities. They all have activities. They have constituency associations or federally and provincially. Uh, You can become part of that. You can become part of the executive. You go to conferences and that, and you gradually become connected to the, active political uh, process. And I've got quite a bit in the book of um, different ways of doing that. And if I recall correctly, you have an index at the back of the book of a number of the organizations that are part of the conservative movement for anybody who's interested. Yes, yes. And you can identify these for every uh, political uh, party. And uh, the and the, this there's often a transmission between the parties and these movement organizations. Often when older politicians retire, they'll do something with the uh, advocacy groups or with the think tanks. And then if you get it connected with them, you can be connected with somebody that can be a mentor or, or share their experience with you. So that's a, yeah, it's a, there's ways and means to get involved in a free country. <laughs> so Preston, as you know, our target audience is people who have a STEM background and science communication starts to play a big role here. Is there any advice that you would offer a scientist who's going to communicate to locally elected officials on an issue? How would they go about this? How do they properly sort of portray their scientific ideas to someone who doesn't have a science background? Well, I think coming back to what we were talking before, to to maybe to start by getting some training for political participation and getting involved in some way or other so that you are actually connected to the, uh, you know, the political parties or the movement. Uh, a second thing is to find a, a mentor. Often older political people are encouraged when some younger person shows some interest in it. And, uh, and uh, I, I actually mentor a fair number of people. And, and often these relationships came about on their uh, initiative. Somebody called me out and said, I'm interested, but I've, I'm not very much involved. And so finding a mentorship relationship can be uh, helpful for, for younger people. The, all these political parties uh, uh, have, and the legislatures and the parliament have internship programs that you can apply for and you can get an exposure that way. So, you know, getting some kind of training, connecting with the movement organizations, finding a mentor, finding an internship, these are ways of at least getting initially involved. Right. Um, and sort of to kind of get the other side of that picture, um, how do you think politicians could effectively communicate scientific issues? So scientific issues are not necessarily black and white. So how could a politician with the information from a scientist communicate to the public? 
Well, I think the first step is obvious is to become more knowledgeable about the, the science. And, and this is a real problem because a lot, a lot of political people do not have a science background and particularly don't have a background in the hard science, in physics, chemistry, biology, mathematics, some may political science, uh, some scientists, some of my basic scientist friends say they're not sure political science is a science. But uh, so I think the first step is to try to become more knowledgeable. But but second, not not to pretend or think that you're an expert because you you know you've consulted Professor Google. Uh, um, and I, I think a more effective way for a, a polit politician to communicate science is to f find some scientists that do know. Uh, what what you're interested in and know about that science and facilitate them communicating on that subject. Like when I was in my constituency, I might uh, on a couple of occasions didn't do this often enough. Have a there's a issue that's got a science foundation to it. There, there was a bill once went through the parliament on uh, uh, assisted human reproduction that got into cloning and stem cells and things like that. And rather than me try to explain the science to my constituents, I would have a panel with people that were knowledgeable and I would facilitate, I would learn from it. But I actually think that's a more effective way of communicating science to your constituents than trying to be the amateur scientist. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Um, how did you recruit these STEM folks or how could parties actually recruit these to help them with new issues? Well, uh, one is, again, like we said, for the good for scientists to go to some of the political events, the constituency meetings, the political conferences. Uh, I think the converse is true, too, that and that, that's one of the reasons I've supported the Canadian Science Policy Conference, which started out very small, but uh, trying to encourage political people to go to some sort of science uh, event, some uh, science conference, particularly the Canadian Science Policy Conference, where it's it's set up to facilitate you meeting uh, people in the scientific community. Right. And then depending on your constituency, if you look around your constituency, uh, uh, you, you know, in, in Calgary here, there's a constituency where the University of Calgary is located, and there's a bunch of scientists working at that university. If you're the member for that riding, you got a, a reason to go and connect with those people. So there's various ways of doing that, but the pol politician has to take some initiative in order for that to happen. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, we did go to the um, Canadian science policy this year and that's sort of how all these connections stemmed. And I think it's working well for us. And I definitely encourage other scientists to do the same. Um, in your book, Do Something, you talk a little bit about science denial. In your view, what are the roots of science denial and how could we address this? Well, there's, I have a good discussion in in, in the book on uh, qu quoting a, a couple of experts on this uh, uh, subject, and they they make the point, and I agree with it, that when political people or anybody deny appear to be denying the science on some fundamental thing, what they may actually be doing is denying the politic the the, the credibility of the political spokespersons for that position. They, they haven't studied the science enough to really be in a position to say whether it's accurate or, or not. But if that science is being communicated by politically by somebody that they fundamentally disagree with for a dozen different reasons, got nothing to do with the, the uh, science, they, they come across as denying the science because they don't like the spokesperson for it. And, and for example, on the right, this uh, climate denial by uh, many conservatives, it, it's not that they've studied that intensively it's because that ground was occupied by the Trudeau liberals in particular 
and uh, and they disagree with that that perspective for a dozen reasons, and so they deny the science. And, and there's the same on the left. There's science denial uh, on the. There's all kinds of scientific and technical studies that show that pipelines are the best and most economical and most environmentally efficient way of moving large volumes of petroleum long distances. But 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 people that don't like the pipeline crowd and don't like the Alberta conservative crowd it will either ignore it or even deny it uh, because they don't like the the, spokes, the political spokesperson identified with it. So I, I think the root, the way to start dealing with science denial is to get to the root and explain, um, discuss, is that really the reason here? And uh, And for scientists to be the primary communicators of their science. If you let that communication be monopolized by political people, you're going to get more of this uh, denying the science because I don't like the politics. Yeah, with kind of, I, I wanted to ask a quick follow-up to to what you were just mentioning there. And and often, you know, scientists, when we communicate, it, it can be technical and dry. Um, <laughs> Uh, but and that doesn't necessarily resonate with the public, right? Um, how can or what tools can we use to better build like an emotional connection to the electorate to to help to facilitate these conversations? Well, this gets into it a whole subject, and I got quite a bit on this uh, book. Uh, I distinguish between receiver-oriented communicators and source-oriented communicators, and I think scientists tend to be source-oriented communicators unless they make an effort to be do it some other way like to, you you you're, you communicate the way that you're comfortable in communicating with your peers you you tend to follow the rough outline of the scientific method you discuss the data and the hypothesis that you were trying to test and what the results were uh, and that's fine in communicating with your peers but the the, the alternative to that and a small d democratic politician is best to be more what's called a receiver-oriented communicator. And you don't start with what do I want to say. You start with who are these people I'm talking to? What is this audience? What is their vocabulary? What's their conceptual framework? What are they worried about? Why is that lady in the third row at this public meeting? Why did she leave the kids and tell her husband to look after them for a while? And why did she come to this meeting? And the more you can answer that, then knowing who I'm talking to, why they're concerned, what their emotional uh, basis is what are they feeling tonight? What are they feeling? Uh, the more I understand that, then I can frame my message to resonate with that. So I, I think the key for, and this is not just true for scientists, for anybody in the democratic arena is to be a receiver-oriented communicator. And if there's an emotional dimension to your your audience or the person you're talking to, then then you start respond. They're afraid of something or they're hopeful about something, or they're worried about something. You, you start by connecting what you want to say to that. Look, I understand you're worried about that, but you know, there's, there's a scientific explanation to this, that, or there's a scientific answer that may help. You, you know what I'm getting at? Well, when I was young, uh, uh, John Diefenbaker was uh, one of his elections in the late 50s. He came to Edmonton during an election campaign. He used to go to the Jubilee Auditorium in Edmonton and Calgary and give this big speech, and there'd be thousands of people there. And uh, my father said, you, you should go and listen to Diefenbaker. So <laughs> I went. And by the time I got there, the audience, the auditorium was full and you, there was no seats, but they were seating the media uh, 
up behind him. And I pretended I was a media person and I got this, I was sitting about 20 feet behind him. And my father had said, watch what he does in the first 10 minutes of his talk. And, and in the first 10 minutes of his talk, there didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. He would kind of shoot out, say this, looking that way and this going that way. There didn't seem to be any order. And then all of a sudden he stopped doing that and honed in on three things. And what he was doing, because Stephen Baker was a defense a lawyer that was used to reading juries. What, what he's doing in the first 10 minutes is sending, like a bat, he's sending out signals and watching what bounces back. You know, why did that guy in the back go like that? Or why did they laugh, you know? And, and he was reading the audience right on the spot. And then he figured with this bunch, here's three things I can hit him with. And, and that's a receiver-oriented communicator. Yeah, really being in tune with the emotions of the audience is, is we, we really need to start to consider that. Yeah, and it, it's a bit of a worry with so much of the virtual communication now because you're, you're not, it's, it's harder to read the collectivity of your uh, audience. And, uh, and that's a real, uh, uh, a real difficulty. Yeah, I can't wait till we're back at, able to, you know, chat in person instead of <laughs> over these virtual mediums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so I, I want to pivot a little bit uh, on the topic and, and, you know, start to, to discuss, you know, how we can improve the connections, you know, at, the parliamentary level between science and parliament and, you know, the Canadian science policy conference that we've talked about a, a, a lot already has been an, an awesome uh, initiative. And, and beyond that, now we, we have a chief science advisor in the federal government, right? Um, so in your opinion, what do you think has, you know, worked and kind of spurred that position and, you know, moving forward, how can we expand it so that, um, you know, it makes more of an impact throughout parliament? Well, I think what's driving it is that more, more and more issues the Parliament has to deal with have a scientific component to them, or there's a scientific explanation or answer. Science can contribute something, and, and so there's a need for the Parliament to have access to scientific expertise. I, I think one thing, they, they attached the, uh, the previous administration, or, or I think it started with the Cretchen administration, attached the chief scientist to the executive. She's attached to the reports to the cabinet. And uh, I think that actually circumscribes the chief scientist because they can't get too far out of line with what the government's position is. And what I favored and advocated unsuccessfully was what I call the scientist general. Like the, the auditor general, for example, is not attached to the cabinet. The auditor general is attached to the parliament. Uh, to the House of Commons, well, to the Parliament, the House of Commons and the Senate. So I, I would prefer a scientist general that is attached to the, the, the Parliament. And so any member of Parliament can go to that person. And they don't expect them to be the source of all scientific expertise, but they can put you in touch with, uh, with somebody that is. The other thing that the British have done is establish what they call the post office, the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology, which is a, a little secretariat with scientific expertise. They put out short papers on the scientific aspect of any issue going through the parliament. And you can go to them as a member of parliament and ask, I, I need to understand this or I need something on that. So I think those two measures would be uh, very, very helpful in getting a stronger science political connection in, in the parliament. And it would same would apply to the provincial legislatures. Yeah. Having that kind of uh, resource would be very useful and, yeah, I, I understand fully what you're saying there. Having having it just to, to cabinet might be restrictive. Perhaps we should have multiple, or even would you say like every committee 
could potentially have, you know, a scientific component or a science advisor could advise every committee on those specific. Yes. And, and the, the committees have the right to subpoena witnesses or to ask uh, experts to come to them. And again, this gets into, if there was more consciousness of the, what science could contribute on the part of committee members, they, they, they could do a lot at the committee level to uh, encourage more scientific uh, participation. Mm-hmm. So again, we're, we're circling back to your book, Do Something, but uh, throughout this, you discuss the importance of conservative parties committing to actually addressing climate change and, and utilizing your know, market-based mechanisms. Um, for our audience, we're recording this in March, so the, the conservative convention just happened, and it's been in the news that you know the federal party voted against a resolution stating that climate change is real and the party is ready to act despite what the current leader uh, of the party is advocating for, they're advocating for that position. Um, what are your thoughts on this? How can we, you know, go beyond this and, and engage that conservative electorate in, in climate change? Well, that's a huge question. And there's no simple answer to it, but I, I would suggest these things. First of all, we talked a little bit earlier about science denial, and it really is not so much rooted in a denial of the a familiarity with or a denial of the science. It's it's rooted in a, a, a dislike and a mistrust of the political communicators of that science. And I, I think conservatives need to have a discussion. That, like, are you really denying the science here? Or is it? do you not like Justin Trudeau and his gang's presentation of it because you mistrust them and d- d- disagree with them on a number of other fronts? And to get at the root cause of it. Then the second thing is to challenge conservatives and challenge anybody in the political arena. What what are the fundamental principles that are going to govern your position on the environment? Forget about climate change. Forget about carbon. Let's get to fundamental principles. We'll we'll get to apply that later, but let's get to fundamental principles. And then I go through a discussion with people and I say, is it not true that the economy and the environment are uh, integrated wholly? that every economic activity has some environmental consequences, some of which are negative. Uh, do you not agree that we should do something to avoid or uh, mitigate those negative environmental consequences? And if you're a conservative and fiscally responsible, don't you think that the cost of those avoidance or mitigative measures should be incorporated in the price of the product or the service so the people that are demanding it pay for the related environmental protection. And, and most conservatives, particularly if you go, that's a market-based approach to dealing with uh, environmental negative environmental impact. And most of them will, uh, will nod their heads and say, yeah, I agree with that, I agree with that. So now you can start getting into the more controversial area. Okay, let, maybe you don't start with uh, CO2 and uh, from burning hydrocarbons. You may say, look, uh, the, the second largest source of uh, greenhouse gas emissions is in the production of concrete. So don't you agree that uh, we ought to figure out what's uh, the negative effect of that? Uh, um, how can you avoid it or mitigate it or reduce it? And the concrete people better incorporate the price the cost of that in the price of the concrete and the people that are buying concrete like the hydro people and like the the uh, provincial highways department and and you as a taxpayer end up paying for it and and a conservative will generally agree with all of that so that then lastly you can come around to one way it's not the only way but one way of dealing with co2 emissions from the combustion of hydrocarbons is to do the same thing and uh, ha- have a pricing mechanism to deal with it. 
and you can distinguish yourself from what the current government is doing. And I've said this, if I was supporting a, a, a carbon pricing regime, I would insist on four conditions, that it be revenue neutral. In other words, that uh, it does not, the, the carbon levy does not take more out of the economy. That, or you reduce the federal taxes by the amount that the carbon levy is taken from the uh, the uh, users that uh, the regime be uh, subsidy free because subsidies distort the market signals that you make an effort to persuade your major trading partners to adopt a similar regime or else you penalize the environmental responsible uh, exporter a- and that you apply this principle of of, of internalizing in- environmental externalities if you're going to apply it to hydrocarbon energy produced from hydrocarbon apply it to every other energy source including hydro nuclear uh, solar and and wind now that's a long train of argument but uh, th- that's a sequence in which i would talk about this discussion to conservative folks in order to try to get them committed to a market-based approach to environmental protection yeah and it really speaks to you know some of the themes you've been talking about where it's going to require all of us to reach across to our fellow Canadians, doesn't matter our affiliations, and just have these deep conversations to, to educate and to, to get to the root of, of these beliefs and, and, and try to you know, find compromise along the way that way. Yeah, one other thing that this discussion brings up, and you may be going to go there, is if you are going to run for an elected office, one of the questions one should sort out very early on, even in deciding whether to do it or not, is is what would you do if your personal position, let's say your conviction as a scientist, uh, is fundamentally different from your party or is fundamentally different from your constituents that you have a legal obligation to represent? What, what do you do? Because that conflict can come up. And uh, the important thing is is to figure out the answer to that before you get to the <laughs> parliament or the legislature, not after. And uh, I, I've had some very interesting discussions with trying to help people think that through. Has that happened to you? Do you have a story about uh, a situation like that? Y- yes. The, the the one that I stands out in the end, I didn't have to vote for it because it didn't come to the uh, parliament. It was on this issue of assisted uh, uh, dying. Uh, the Sue Rodriguez case, this goes back quite a number of years, but uh, the, the criminal code used to make it a, a criminal offense to assist someone in committing suicide. And there was this challenge to that uh, uh, law. And and I, I was on the side of, I, I was very reluctant to start going down the slippery slope of the state ever sanctioning the taking of, of life. Uh, but uh, I represented the riding of Calgary Southwest. So to start with trying to find out where my people are at. So we, we did a, a public opinion survey. We did town hall meetings where we had experts to debate both sides of the issue. We did electronic town hall meeting. And it was quite clear by a number of sources that the majority of my constituents favored uh, uh, striking down that criminal code uh, provision. They also added a whole bunch of other conditions. And yes, you should permit the physician assisted suicide, but it had to be, you had the opinion of more than one physician. Uh, the person had to be of sound mind, etc. They had a bunch of conditions. And uh, what I said to my constituents, I, I don't agree with what you're doing, what you want, 
But uh, if push came to shove, I, I, I would reluctantly support it if it ever comes to the House. But I'm not a good advocate for it. I don't believe it. You're, you're right. And I'm not the one to advocate it. And if, if you force me to do this very often, I don't think I'd be the right one to represent you. And I don't think I'd want to represent you. But the other thing I did was I took their, what they wanted to the Legislative Council at the Parliament and asked them what kind of a bill could incorporate the, 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 the removing the criminal code prohibition, but incorporate these conditions that they want to add to it. And uh, he came back to me and said, well, the bill would be about 50 pages long. Uh, it would be very uh, c complex. And, and secondly, and most importantly, th this is really a health issue. And so it's actually in provincial jurisdiction. So even if the federal parliament passed this, it would probably go to the courts and half of it would be struck down. So, so I'm kind of sharing with you the debate that went on, and uh, it was very instructive, that, that whole debate. But that's the kind of debate one would have. There's a difference between your personal position, the, uh, the uh, constituents, and, uh, and your, even your party. And uh, the, the party I was with, the Reform Party, actually had a position on that. They said if push came to shove, the constituents' position prevailed. Uh, they, we also supported free votes in the parliament, where if you disagreed with your party, you were free to vote some other direction. But you had to prove voting because your people wanted it to. You, you weren't voting to be contrary. So that's a huge issue, but one you better think through for yet there, not, not after. Absolutely. Well, and it also helps you make uh, make your selection of political party, right? Because as you know, the Reform Party was quite open to the idea that you could take a position that was contrary to the party position. And that's, you know, I, from what I understand, the different parties have different levels of um, acceptance for those kinds of debates and, and that type of thing. Yeah, and, well, and it can be hazardous. Like we, we had this freer voting uh, concept and, and it, it didn't... Uh, operationalize itself very often but when it did guess what the headline was in the uh, newspapers it, it wasn't that reformers free to vote their conscience or their party or their people's views it was reform divided yep because the appearance was that you were divided so there was a penalty to to play and then it also depends on the circumstance in the parliament uh, if it's a majority parliament and you're in the opposition or even you're in the government and you vote against the, the government on a bill uh, it's not going to affect the outcome. But in a minority parliament where, where there's a, two or three members can affect whether the government survives or not, all of a sudden the party discipline becomes absolutely uh, uh, crucial. I, I tried to, write, uh, to to talk John Cretchen into uh, endorsing fr free votes. I said, John, John look, I'll, I'll write it out. It'll take you 20 seconds to, to say this. Just stand up here and say that if the government loses a vote on a, a bill or a, a part of a bill or a motion or a resolution, it won't resign. But it will immediately ask for a confidence vote. Did the House actually mean to throw out the government or did it just mean to th throw out this part of a bill or this bill or whatever? And uh, he smiled. I don't think I'll do that. <laughs> So uh, thank you so much, Preston. This has been fantastic. Um, I wanted to invite you to you know, make one last statement. We have listeners that are coming from a STEM background that are politically curious. Um, you know, what, what, would you, what would you say to them to try to encourage them to do something? Well, I'd, well, I'd say you, you do live in a democracy and, and it's got lots of flaws, but uh, 
it's uh, you do have these opportunities. The, the, the little reform party I was with started with five people meeting in a room in Calgary and saying, we don't like what's going on. We're going to do something different. And we use the tools that democracy gives to everybody, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom to try to persuade people to vote this way rather than that. So you do live in a democracy that presents opportunities to eventually our activities resulted in the election of a majority uh, government. Uh, so I would encourage uh, people of a scientific background to take advantage of the opportunities that democracy gives you. It, it, it doesn't require a lot of uh, a large number of scientific people in the caucuses of the various parties to have an influence on issues where science is particularly relevant, you, even if you just had two or three. But when they're not there, th- then that absence is noticeable. So I would encourage involvement. And uh, there's lots of material, including my uh, book on uh, ways and means to get advice and help on, on how to do, do to become involved. And I'm available myself on a limited basis to carry on this kind of discussion with individuals that are seriously thinking about such involvement. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for spending your time here today. I think this is going to be a fascinating story for our listeners and, uh, again, inspirational for, uh, uh, for folks that are politically curious. So thank you so much for your time today. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you all. And for our listeners uh, that, that are listening to the show, please rate, re- review, and subscribe to the podcast. That is how other politically curious scientists and engineers will discover the show. Uh, thank you, and we'll, we'll talk to you next time.